right. Well, I think I know most of you, but if not, my name is John, and uh, I'm one of the elders here at Wayside. So not the standard pastor here. Ben and the Brummett family are still on a vacation, which I understand was a little bit interrupted by the Yellowstone flooding, so they had some plans change. Uh, Not sure where they are right now, but they're still somewhere across the country. Um, But so I get the privilege today of opening up... um, the book of Acts, continuing through, getting into chapter 15 this morning. So you can go ahead and get your Bibles turned to Acts 15. Um, and as you're flipping there, you might see a section or chapter heading that's titled the Jerusalem Council or the Council at Jerusalem, which means today we get to see the early church practicing politics. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And not only are they practicing politics, right when we get into this chapter, we'll see the dispute that requires this council is rooted in a racial tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. So we have some politics and racism in the early church to cover today. So it's going to be really, really fun. Um, Here we go. And we also have 35 verses in Acts 15 to to cover. So I'm going to do it a little bit different than I usually would, and I'm going to read through it all up front here, and then I'll just reference to specific verses as we go. So if you turn there, let's read Acts 15, verses 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the, a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Barnabas and Paul. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed from idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So that's our passions today. Um, I'm going to pray real quick before we go any further. Lord, you are good. You are holy. You are powerful. You are the creator of heaven and earth. You are the creator of each one of us and of all human beings in your image. Um, I pray that as we go through this passage today, um, we'd be united in your love, in your spirit, that um, your Holy Spirit would illuminate the word to us, that you would teach us what you have in store for us. And Lord, that it would all be to your glory. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So, as I mentioned earlier, we see right at the beginning of this passage in Acts 15 that the dispute that leads to this council is rooted in a racial tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And as we know from the history of the Bible, this is not a new conflict. This goes back thousands of years into Genesis and Exodus from Abraham being called out of the land of Ur and Moses being given the law, which was intended to set the Israelites apart from the world. So dating all the way back to there, there's been conflict um, between these two people groups. And even after Jesus comes on the scene and fulfills that law um, and introduces this new fulfilled Christian faith, the tension continues to rise up and attempt to divide the early Christian church. In the first nine chapters of Acts, which we studied back to I don't know, last fall, I don't can't remember when he started Acts at this point, but in the first nine chapters, the spread of the Christian faith is limited primarily to the ethnic Jews in the areas of Jerusalem and surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. So it wasn't until Acts chapter 10 that we have the first account of the gospel being shared with Gentiles, which is in the story of Peter and Cornelius, which if you remember at that point, this is such a controversial topic for the early church that Luke spends pretty much two full chapters telling first the visions of Cornelius and Peter, then Peter's trip to Cornelius' house that fulfills those visions. And then after that's all done, when Peter returns to Jerusalem and he's criticized for going into the house of a Gentile, there's another half a chapter of Peter repeating this all again to the believers in Jerusalem uh, as a defense. And at the end of Peter's defense, in Acts eleven eighteen, 18, um, his critics have no further objections. And it says they praise God saying, 
So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So it seemed like the case was settled, right? Everything was good. Gentiles are welcomed into the early church, and they can move on. But as we know from everything in human history, centuries of division can't really be settled by one decision of a church or a council or a government. Uh, It's kind of appropriate that today is the day that this falls on because um, it's June 19th, and in addition to being Father's Day, today is also Juneteenth, which if you're not familiar with the details of that, it commemorates the day that the Union General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, to deliver the message of emancipation for slaves in Texas. So that was on June 19, 1865, 157 years ago today. So history pop quiz, who knows when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation? Okay, you looked like you might know it. That's okay. I didn't know either. I had to look it up. 63, yes. January 1st, 1863. I'll give you partial credit for at least getting the year right. (laughs) So, yeah, January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect and legally frees all slaves in the rebelling states. And it's not until June 19th, 1865, two and a half years later, two and a half years of war and hundreds of thousands of lives later, that that announcement can even be made in Texas. And even after that announcement came and slaves were freed, as we all know from the history of the U.S., that didn't mean the end of racial conflict at all. There was a century later with the civil rights movement that um, led to those freed slaves now receiving a lot uh, lot of their rights. And even today, as we've seen in the past few years, it seems more, not more so than ever, but it seems once again it's come to a head that racism is very much still alive in this country. And racism in the United States today and this conflict between Jews and Gentiles in the early church are definitely not the exact same thing. I want to make that clear. They're different things and they're both wrong. So these are two different examples of the same sinful tendency of humans to treat anyone who looks, thinks, talks, acts, or worships different than us as something less than human beings who are created in the image of God. So what we're going to see in Acts 15 today is that the key to unity in the church, made up of diverse believers, is maintaining a focus on essentials of the gospel. And this is going to play out in three ways in this passage. First, we'll see that elevating non-essential practices creates division in the church. Focusing on gospel essentials creates unity. And living in community with diverse Christians requires love. So, first we'll look at how elevating non-essential practices creates division in the church. So, as we mentioned, the very beginning of Acts 15 is marked by this same disagreement over Gentiles' involvement in the church once again. Uh, threatening to divide the church. While Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, <clears throat> we read in Acts 15:1 that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is when Paul and Barnabas have returned to Antioch. Um, this is the, the passage that Kevin was preaching on last week. They've just gone through their first missionary journey creating the churches through Pamphylia and Galatia, and then returning back through creating disciples and encouraging and strengthening those churches. Now they're back in Antioch, celebrating the work that God's done among the Gentiles on this trip. And while they're celebrating this work, 
These men come down from Judea to Antioch and begin teaching that circumcision is, circumcision is required for salvation. This goes on in verse 5. These guys, we get some more information about them. We learn that they belonged to the party of the Pharisees. And in addition to circumcision, they're also ordering that Gentiles keep the whole law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas immediately recognize that bringing these requirements onto the Gentiles of Mosaic law, this non-essential requirement, creates a barrier of faith that divides the church. And they don't stand for it. They debate these guys. They says there's no small dissension and debate arising in Antioch. And I would not want to be the guy there debating Paul on this topic because, as we know from the New Testament, Paul is very familiar with defending this case of not adding non-essential requirements to the gospel. It's one of the primary points he stresses throughout his letters. And in fact, one of the strongest points he puts forward is in his letter to the Galatians, which, again, remember, he's just finished this missionary trip to the Galatians. He's just gone back through strengthening those churches. And there's some debate on when Galatians was written, but there's pretty good evidence that he wrote it while he was back in Antioch before he comes to the Jerusalem Council. So very fresh on his mind. And here's what he writes in Galatians. At the beginning of his letter, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Then again, towards the end of this letter, he says, If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. These are really strong words. If you accept the Jewish law and try to be justified by it, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're severed from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. Paul doesn't mince words about the danger of adding to the gospel. These examples from Galatians and Acts are specifically referring to the addition of non-essential Jewish law to the gospel because that's the issue that was at hand at that time. And you might be thinking no one's trying to make people follow Torah these days, but we still see the same pattern of elevating non-essential practices that leads to dividing the church. Just like those Judean Christians, there are many in today's church who would teach, unless you do this, you can't be saved. Maybe that wording is a little hard to imagine, but think about it this way. Could you really be a Christian and do this? Or I just don't see how you could be a Christian and do that. Unless you belong to my denomination, you can't be saved. Can you really be a Christian if you don't tithe 10%? Unless you believe in a premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture, you can't be a Christian. Or the one that I think I hear a lot more often these days is, I just can't believe someone could be a Christian and vote Republican or Democrat. I've heard them both in the past few months, and we're not even in the middle of an election. So when we work through how to handle these non-essential issues, uh, there's a Christian saying that dates back at least 400 years that gives a helpful framework for us. It says, "...in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things love." So the answer to this conflict that's caused by focusing on non-essential differences that divide the body of Christ is to allow liberty and freedom in these areas while holding strong to the gospel essentials. 
So let's look back at Acts 15 and see how focusing on the essentials creates unity in the church in Jerusalem and the surrounding churches of Gentiles. After the dispute arises in Antioch, causes this conflict, Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem to bring the issue before the apostles and the elders. In this council that's called, the decision that is proposed by Peter, confirmed by James, and then accepted by the whole church, is that they should not burden the Gentile believers with non-essential requirements, but should hold to the essential truth of the gospel, which Peter puts really clearly and simply in chapter 15, verse 11, when he says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So this is him talking about we, the Jews, and they, the Gentiles, both will be saved by faith through grace of the Lord Jesus. So the result of this council is a unanimous decision by the apostles and the elders with the whole church having come to one accord that they should stick to the essentials. The church in Jerusalem is united around this essential gospel message of salvation by grace through faith. We see it in a lot of the language that's used in this passage where I've kind of been repeating it here. It says the whole church comes together having come to one accord. Um, The decision is unanimous. There's a lot of language there on unity in the church in Jerusalem. And then we also see that unity spreading to the churches beyond as a result of the letter. So after the united Jerusalem church sends this letter out, they send Paul and Barnabas along with Judas and Silas as eyewitnesses to support their message. And they go out with this letter and deliver it to Antioch. When they arrive there in Antioch, they gather the whole church together and read it aloud, which also gives us a cool picture of how a lot of these uh, epistles that we have in the New Testament would have been delivered to a church they gather together and they read this whole thing aloud to them. And after it's read, in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 15, we read that they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So this news of the gospel essentials brings about joy and encouragement. Then these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem and Gentile Christians from Antioch Spend time together encouraging and strengthening one another. This is what it looks like to build unity by focusing on the gospel essentials. Now, the natural question that I'm sure comes up when we talk about gospel essentials is who gets to decide? Who decides what's essential? Some of you might be hearing me and um, ready to walk out here thinking, man, John was really on to something. If everyone would just agree with me, we could be so united, the world would be so much better off. But believe it or not, it's really good for all of us that we don't get to decide what's essential. History shows us that human beings, even if they think they're well-intentioned, make lousy moral guides without a source of absolute truth. So when we're determining what's essential, we have to rely on the Bible as our source of truth. We have to actually believe that what the Bible says is essential. If we compromise on any aspect of biblical truth, we make ourselves the judge over which words of Scripture are authoritative and to be followed and which ones are not. And we end up in a postmodern, relativistic world where everyone decides for themselves what is good, which sounds pretty familiar because that's essentially the world we're in. And because the culture we live in is so firmly settled into this relativistic worldview, anytime we proclaim that something is essential and universally true, we can expect resistance. So I also want to issue a warning as we talk about unity. That warning is that Christian unity is only possible in Christ. 
We can't expect to have unity with the world. Jesus warned his disciples about this over and over. In his last meeting with them, uh, before he is arrested and crucified, he tells them, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. That is why the world hates you. We can't expect to be united to a world that hates us. And even within the body of Christ, unity doesn't mean we all look, think, talk, act, or worship the same way. In our Wayside Constitution, as we describe the Church of Christ and the body of Christ, we use the term unity and diversity in Christ. That unity is described this way. We believe that by the same Spirit, all believers in this age are baptized into and thus become one body that is Christ, whether Jews or Gentiles. And having become members one of another, are under solemn duty to keep the unity of Spirit in the bond of peace, rising above all sectarian differences and loving one another with a pure heart fervently. Which brings me to our third and final point here which is that living in community with diverse, diverse Christians requires love. So let's look back at Acts 15, because there's some interesting pieces here that I haven't discussed yet. And that's that after this council and all this discussion about not adding rules and regulations onto the gospel and not burdening the Gentile believers, they lay down a few rules and regulations for those Gentiles. So let's look at those rules and look at the reasoning that's given in the council and the letter of why they deliver these rules to them. So first let's look at Acts fifteen twenty nine in this letter that is sent out um, where the rules are listed. So this is the council's letter writing to the Gentiles saying, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, So these four rules are laid out. Abstain from food that has been sacrificed from idols, abstain from eating blood, abstain from the meat of strangled animals, and abstain from sexual immorality. So there's three pretty specific dietary rules and one general rule about sexual behavior. There's also two reasons that are given. One during the council when they're discussing it and a a separate related one in the letter. So first let's continue in Acts 15.29. Um, and look at the reason that's given in the letter. So after those rules are listed, it says, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So this reasoning is practical wisdom, right? He's saying you should avoid these things because it's the best thing for you to do. It's the best way for you to live. Even though you're free in Christ, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says it well. He says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And this aligns with what we believe about the Christian life. The way of life described in the Bible is a life that's lived according to the purpose of creation. And therefore, it's the best way to live. As Jesus said, he came to give us life to the fullest. And living according to biblical guidelines gives us that most fulfilling life. So next, let's look at the related reason that James gives in the council when he's discussing this. Um, In verse 21 of Acts 15, following the listing of those same regulations, he says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, 
for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So this reasoning might be a little bit less clear when we first read it, but it's relying on relational wisdom, which is what I'm going to focus on as we finish up here. James is telling that these rules represent the loving, charitable way to practice their faith among Jewish Christians and Jews who may become Christians and practice their faith in a way that would avoid offending the Jewish traditions that were brought into that Christian faith. Paul spends most of 1 Corinthians chapters 8-13 through 13 <clears throat> expanding on the idea of limiting our freedoms in order to live at peace with those around us. For most of these chapters, he's speaking specifically to these same types of dietary restrictions, and it's hard for me to pick one piece of that to help explain this, so homework is just go read 1 Corinthians 8-13 through 13 because it's great. Um, but for now, let's look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19-22. through 22. In those verses, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So this is Paul's guidance for how we can live in community with diverse Christians. We don't deny differences, we respect them. We have to be willing to go outside of our comfort zone to accommodate different forms of worship. And beyond forms of worship, we have to be willing to sacrifice our own freedom to live the way we want in order to avoid offending other cultures and the way other people live and even other people's sin struggles. I think the classic example we have right now is alcohol, where for some people you may be able to have a drink and it's no problem, but if you're with a friend who one drink turns into 20 and it's wrecking their life, then you're not going to have a drink around them. There's a lot of other examples like that. That's the simple one to, to use today. The key there is we just have to love others sacrificially. And as I'm talking about that um, <clears throat> and loving others and being united with others, I want to give one more final warning. Because when we talk about unity and Christian love, it can be easy to make the mistake that love equals tolerance. So we have to keep this relational wisdom of not living in a way that offends others balanced with the practical wisdom of knowing that the biblical way of life is the best way for people to live. And while we're seeking unity with others, we can't ignore sin. That's not the loving way to treat people. Jesus sets a great example of how to live with others in a way that's loving, in a way that cares for them, but a way that holds them accountable for sin instead of ignoring it. In John 8, the woman who's caught in adultery and brought before Jesus by the Pharisees, after Jesus dismisses her accusers by pointing out that they are all sinful just like she is, he doesn't send her off and say, you're good, Everyone's, everyone makes mistakes, we're all sinners, it's fine, which wouldn't make sense because obviously Jesus isn't a sinner. But he doesn't send her off that way, saying everyone's human, it's fine. He says, go and sin no more. So even while approaching her with love and forgiveness, he's not ignoring sin. I want to close today by reading a little bit more scripture because the Bible says these things a lot better than I can. So I want to look at another one of Paul's letters to the Philippians and his description of what 
unity in the church looks like. He calls for unity in spirit and in mind, and he also gives some practical advice on how to achieve that unity by following the example of Christ. So Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let me pray for us.